I'm Michael Ashcroft, the founder of Lord Ashcroft Polls, and this is the Ashcroft in America podcast. Each week for the next seven weeks, the Lord Ashcroft Polls team is visiting one of the crucial states to hear what local voters are thinking about the presidential election. And the first destination on our tour is Green Bay, Wisconsin. This state has voted for the Democratic candidate in every presidential election since Reagan, and results have not been especially close since 2004. So, what are we doing here? The answer lies in what most observers see as Donald Trump's most likely road to the White House, given the nature of his appeal. That road takes him through the Midwest and the Rust Belt into the states no Republican presidential candidate has won for decades. If Trump were to win all the states Mitt Romney won in 2012, plus Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, and Wisconsin, he would get to exactly 270 electoral college votes, the magic number. If he managed that, he could do without the uber-swing state of Florida. So the strategy works in theory. What about in practice? Winning states like Wisconsin would amount to a redrawing of America's political map. But the state is not solidly democratic. The governor, one of its senators, and five of its eight members of Congress are Republicans. And although Trump lost his primary election here by 13 points, so did Hillary Clinton. The voters here have a big decision to make. Later we will hear what they have to say. Kevin Colwick, the director of Lord Ashcroft Polls, and I'm here at the start of our tour in Wisconsin, home of America's dairy industry, speaker Paul Ryan, the Miller Beer Company, the Green Bay Packers, and Donna from the West Wing. Joining us as ever is MSNBC political analyst and time contributor Elise Jordan. Hello again, Elise. Good to be here, Kevin. This week on the Ashcroft in America podcast, we have Lord Ashcroft's interviews with Republican National Committee Chairman Reince Priebus and with CNN commentator Margaret Hoover the Washington Bureau Chief of Wisconsin's biggest newspaper and the State Assembly member for this district will tell us how they see the local race and most important of all, we will hear from real voters here in Green Bay. But first, let's look at what's happened in the campaign since our season premiere last week. This was the week in which protests broke out in Charlotte, North Carolina, following a police killing, and the governor of North Carolina declared a state of emergency. Hillary Clinton resumed her campaign schedule after taking a break to recover from pneumonia. The latest polling average put Hillary Clinton less than two points ahead of Donald Trump. The Trump campaign appeared to compare Syrian refugees to Skittles. Tonight show host Jimmy Fallon defended ruffling Donald Trump's hair. And President George H.W. Bush was reported to have said he would be voting for Hillary Clinton. Meanwhile, back to Wisconsin. Craig Gilbert is the Washington bureau chief of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. I asked him how it was that Republicans controlled the state government, but the Democrats had carried the state in every presidential election for 32 years. Could it be that Wisconsin voters were less partisan than elsewhere? No, I think they're actually quite partisan. I think it's really the dynamics of uh, two different electorates. Um, you have, as you do in some other states, uh, a kind of large pool of Democratic voters that, that vote in presidential elections but don't always vote in midterm elections. So the electorate gets a lot bigger in presidential races, and, and particularly in a city like Milwaukee, where the turnouts are not always 
high in the midterms. Uh, they get much higher in the races for president. And, um, and so the Republicans, you know, the Republican voters in, in Wisconsin uh, turn out at very high rates. They're very, they're, they tend to turn out in most elections, whether it's a midterm or a presidential. So they have a turnout advantage in the midterms that disappears in the presidential. There, there really are more Democratic voters in the electorate, eligible voters, and there are Republicans in Wisconsin, but the Democrats don't always turn out. Okay, one of the interesting things about Wisconsin in this race is that both Trump and Clinton lost their primaries here by quite big margins. Does that tell us something about how people in the state see the choice before them? It does. It, it tells you that they both have real weaknesses in Wisconsin. Um, Hillary Clinton actually has lost two presidential primaries by double digits, the one in 2008 against Barack Obama and um, this last one against Bernie Sanders. Um, so she has not been particularly popular here. Um, and Donald Trump uh, uh, had a terrible defeat here um, back in April in the state's uh, Republican primary at a time when he was starting to run away from the field in other states. Um, there were some local factors that went into that. He he criticized and fought with the gov Republican governor of Wisconsin, Scott Walker, who had been a former rival of his for president. Um, he was criticized heavily on conservative talk radio in Wisconsin, which is a factor in southeastern Wisconsin. Um, and I think his style, his his um, kind of flamboyance and and uh, polemical style um, didn't play very well and doesn't necessarily play very well here. So you saw it in April in the primaries, but you still see it. Um, right now, there's about three times as many undecided registered voters in Wisconsin as there were four years ago in the race between Barack Obama and Mitt Romney. And uh, most of those voters uh, dislike both candidates. You're a man with a finger on the pulse of what's happening in Wisconsin, and you're also known for your um, ability to look at the data and, and read what's going on. So um, you can tell us now what's going to happen in Wisconsin in November. Who's going to win and by what margin? Well, I can say that it would be certainly be an upset um, sitting here today. It would be an upset if Donald Trump carried Wisconsin. I mean, we've we've talked about the history of the state. It's it, In some ways, it's hard to imagine you know, Donald Trump being the Republican that breaks this losing streak in Wisconsin, given his own um, his own performance in Wisconsin, in the primary and his performance in the polls. I mean, Hillary Clinton has literally been ahead in every poll that's been taken in Wisconsin. That's not a good sign. Um, uh, the same thing. We saw the same thing with Mitt Romney against Barack Obama four years ago. Uh, Barack Obama led in every poll and he ended up winning the state by seven points, um, having won the state by 14 points in 2008. There have been very close elections in Wisconsin. Uh, the two George W. Bush elections were were carried by the Democrats by a fraction of a percentage point. In 2004, Wisconsin was actually the closest state in the country. So it can be done, but Republicans really have to sort of maximize their vote on all fronts. They have to turn out their base like crazy, and then they have to compete in these battleground parts of the state. And it's not clear that Donald Trump is doing both of those things um, and uh, he's helped in this case, and, and the race is made more interesting by Hillary Clinton's own weaknesses in the state. I mean, that's really what's keeping it close. So there's an element of volatility and unpredictability in the size of the undecided vote, which is not only bigger than it was um, uh, four years ago, much bigger than it was, but it's actually grown. Uh, normally, the number of undecided voters, voters shrinks over the course of a campaign as voters 
focus on the campaign and make up their minds, but it's actually bigger now than it was six months ago, um, which I think tells you something about the challenges facing both candidates in Wisconsin. All that said, um, it's probably Hillary Clinton's race to lose in Wisconsin. As Craig was saying, Hillary Clinton has now lost not one, but two presidential primaries here in Wisconsin. I asked Eric Genrick, the district's Democratic representative in the Wisconsin State Legislature, why he thought local voters chose Bernie Sanders over the eventual Democratic nominee. Well, I think, you know, Bernie Sanders offered a very compelling and ambitious agenda for working class people that have um, seen an erosion in their livelihood in the last 30 odd years or so. Um, and so I think that's why, you know, he, he found such, um, such support here in Wisconsin and in Green Bay and other places. But I think what we've seen um, since the end of the, the primary season is Bernie Sanders coming together with Hillary Clinton, informing some of her policy positions, strengthening some of them with regard to higher education and affordable health care um, and some other things. So I think, you know, a lot of um, those divisions that existed in the Democratic primary um, have been healed to some extent, and, and I think she's benefiting from that and, and would benefit um, further if she continues to emphasize some of those working class issues. Do you think that Democratic voters are going to be less enthused, though, about Hillary versus Bernie on Election Day? And do you think that this could affect turnout? Yeah, I think Hillary Clinton and her campaign are cognizant of the fact that um, millennial voters in particular need to be motivated to, to come out um, in this election and support her. Uh, demographically, you know, uh, not to speak, um, you know, with a, a, a broad brush about millennials in general, but when you look at public polling, a uh, vast majority of millennials are, are very much in line with what her positions are um, with regard to, you know, fighting climate change, uh, affordable uh, higher education, uh, affordable health care, uh, civil rights uh, for gay and lesbian individuals, um, a whole host of issues, you know, they're in agreement with her. So I think the key is to, to emphasize that point and to um, build bridges between the campaign and between um, millennials and, and hopefully, um, you know, build some of that enthusiasm. Wisconsin native Reince Priebus is the chairman of the Republican National Committee and has held the job longer than anyone in the party's history. Lord Ashcroft spoke to him in New York and asked what had changed since Mitt Romney's defeat in 2012. 2012, Romney lost narrowly to President Obama in the popular vote by a larger margin in the Electoral College. What will make things different this time around? Well, I think the difference is, is that the electorate right now, the voters out there across the country, they want to buy the change product. So, you know, for all the talk about ground game and data and infrastructure and targeting, the most fundamental thing you need to do in order to win an election is actually comport with the general direction that the electorate wants to go. The, the, the electorate wants to go in a change direction in a big way. That's why Bernie Sanders did so well on the Democratic side of the aisle, and that's why Donald Trump killed the competition on our side of the aisle. So the difference is, is that people want the change product. Now, it's up to us and Donald Trump to show the American people that it's a safe product to purchase. If Donald Trump can show the American people that it's a safe product to purchase, they will, he will win easily because he is the change candidate. And now people, if they, if they get comfortable with it, 
he wins. And when you look at the electoral map, it's clear that the Trump campaign has arguably a tough job on its hands. Where do you see Donald Trump's path to the 270 electoral votes? Well, I, you, you still go to those those states that are uh, in the middle. We call them purple states. Republican Party is red, Democrat Party is blue, purple is in the middle. So you still have to concentrate on the purple states. But I would just say that Ohio... Um, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Florida, three out of those four, and then you need to add in uh, one or two other states, and I would say right now Nevada looks very good, Iowa looks very good for Donald Trump, Um, obviously you want to do as well as you can in Virginia, Pennsylvania, and New Hampshire as well, given not just because we can win those states, but um, we have important Senate races in those states as well, so Wisconsin is a state that we are always intrigued by, and they've had incredible Republican success over the last several years. Uh, and people like Governor Scott Walker and Paul Ryan are from Wisconsin. I'm from Wisconsin. And so we always feel like we can win there, and I think we're going to make a big attempt to do that this year, too. Well, <clears throat> clearly some of those states that you mentioned, particularly in the Midwest, but no Republican presidential candidate has won since the 1980s. And do you think... Do you really think that that's on the cards? Well, it has to be. I mean, you know, Ohio, it has to be, we have to win Ohio. Um, I don't see how you get the 270 electoral college uh, number without Ohio. Um, and we can win in places like Michigan and Wisconsin. If you look at the appeal of Donald Trump, uh, you look at northern Wisconsin, northern Michigan, I don't think we've ever seen numbers this big before outstate. Now, you saw problems in Detroit and Milwaukee. Uh, but I think as he peels away and he makes the case to black and Hispanic voters across America that we can win a greater portion of black voters uh, in Milwaukee and Detroit than we did four and eight years ago. But our problems as a party, as a national party, are nothing new. I mean, we, haven't, we, we have become a great midterm party, but we have had a hard time winning presidential races in our party. And I think part of it is, is because we have failed to read and play the culture the right way. That's the big advantage, going back to your first question, the difference. The difference is Donald Trump understands the culture and he plays to the culture in America. We haven't had that. We've actually had sort of the anti-culture candidate. So that's the big question mark in this election. Can we ride that and be safe and be on message all at the same time while Hillary Clinton's sitting in the ditch? Some of the polling shows that upwards of 20% of uh, Republican voters are either supporting Hillary or another candidate, or at least are still uh, undecided uh, on Mr. Trump. First of all, does that worry you? And what would you say to Republicans who have not yet come around to the idea of voting for Mr. Trump? Well, everything worries me. I mean, that's my job is to worry about everything and try to fix everything. I'm the, I'm the fixer. But you're um, not taking too much alcohol at the moment. Uh, not at the moment. No, it might be shortly, but not at this moment in time. Uh, but uh, as I've said before, I haven't been pouring Baileys in my cereal just yet. Um, but back to the topic, which is... I, I, I worry about things like that, but I but I know that because these Republicans were there, they were home, that they will come back home, 
but it, it happens as Donald Trump remains disciplined in his messaging, which he has been, again. They will come back. And, and, the, and the reason is, and the point is, is that people really don't want a liberal Supreme Court. The Supreme Court election, I mean, the Supreme Court nominations in our country are appointed by the president. The president appoints the people who have, unfortunately, a greater say over the direction of a lot of our laws and our, the path that we're taking as a country than even the legislature. There's not a lot getting done in the legislature. So all of the major shifts in American priorities that would be normally legislative issues are happening through the Supreme Court. Hundreds of federal judges, three or four Supreme Court justices. This is nothing to play around with. It's not a matter of four-year presidency. It's a 40-year change in laws across our country. That it gets to the heart of what will bring a Republican back to Donald Trump if they're not on board already. People often say Donald Trump seems more focused on stirring up fear and anger among voters than on offering solutions to the problems that he talks about. How would you characterize his message? I think people are fearful, and I think people are angry. And so part of understanding the culture in America is talking to the people about things that they're feeling. People are afraid of the future as far as our economy and a debt bomb facing this country. People are afraid for what they see happening across the world with ISIS and random and horrific acts that are happening everywhere. We've got a porous border that's not secure. Uh, we have, I think, a, a foolhardy plan in, in the Middle East that isn't getting the job done. Um, and so that's really where people are at. I mean, I'm just telling you this is how people think. This is how I think. It's how my wife thinks. It's what my sister thinks. It's what my mom thinks. So whether that's playing on fear and anger, I, it's just it's what we think. People are very concerned. And finally, uh, what are one or two things you think people living outside the United uh, States in places like the UK and Europe should know about the US elections? Um, it, what I would say about elections that are probably different than a lot of folks might, that you're interviewing might say is it's much more data-driven and targeted than people realize. We don't just blanket message across the board and expect to do well. We try to pick out individual households within communities and message directly to them based on the data that we have on each individual donor. So if you're a voter in Ohio, I know everything you buy and don't buy. I know what beer you drink. I know what car you drive. I know how much money you make, how many kids you have. I know whether your mortgage is upside down or not. I know everything about you that's going to make me understand how to communicate to you in a specialized, targeted way so that before I waste my time knocking on your door and seeing if you'd be willing to vote early, I have, a, I have an understanding of what your propensity is to what you're going to do once I put a ballot in your hand. That's what a, that's what a national party does. That's what we do at the Republican National Committee. It is a very targeted, data-driven operation that is the big difference maker in these elections. Now, that all being said, goes back to what we talked about from the very start of this interview. Which candidate is reading the electorate, the voters, better? Is it the change guy that people want to stir things up and change Washington and get a handle on the border and, and, our, and, our, and our position overseas? Or is it the person that's been hanging out in the White House and around politics and has amassed $100 million somehow in public service and Hillary Clinton. 
I, I just feel good about where we're at. And I think as long as Donald Trump continues down this good road he's on, your listeners are going to be welcoming President Trump into the UK. Now for the first focus group action from the Ashcroft in America tour. We assembled a group of people who consider themselves Republicans but did not vote for Donald Trump in the primary and a group of his stronger supporters. We asked for their impressions of the nominee. Some of the stuff he says just makes me cringe, but mm. when you're looking at him compared to Hillary, those are my choices. He's very smart. Yeah. He's made, I mean, a lot of money being smart, but he doesn't, he doesn't know how to talk to people in a way. Right. And I almost think he needs etiquette classes. He doesn't say stuff just because people want to hear it. He says what he feels and what he thinks, and if you like it, you do. If you don't, you don't care. And being a businessman, he's used to going to the people that would have a good idea of answers and good input. So he's not a stranger to asking for advice. Sometimes I worry about politicians. They say how they're going to fix everything. They never do it. So what's the point? You tell me what you're going to do, but you never do it. He gets it because he built his company from the ground up where the Clintons are kind of just taking money. I think he represents change, the change that we need. I mean, I think that's the biggest thing that's coming across is that we need change. If the thing about Donald Trump is that he represents change, what is it that people want to change from? you got China's flexing their muscle. you got Russia making monkeys out of us. you got North Korea making monkeys out of us. You have ISIS making us look like fools. I mean, I know people that have taken advantage of the system, but I feel like we've got to somehow figure out a way to stop and to get people so they are working, so they can pay for things. But when you keep enabling, I mean, when you get a check and you don't have to work, why would you want to work? When with the Obamacare and all that stuff came through and now all of a sudden 30, I think it was 30 hours got you benefits, I had staff come to me and say, I can't work 40 hours a week because then I have to pay for my stuff. Our nation has never seen deeper division on so many levels um, since he's came into office with with racism, um, this whole transgender, whatever you want to call it, you know, same-sex marriage. um, It's just, it's gotten out of control. We're a third world country. You look at the definition of what it is, what do we make? We import everything. We export our resources, and we import finished products. I think there was 500,000 homeless vets that we're not going to do anything for, but we can put up these refugees. The new American dream is to survive versus thrive. It's to make it through. That is success now. You look at how many thousands and thousands and thousands that have been admitted into this country under Obama, and you think it's a coincidence of all the, the terrorism and the bombings and the murders? I mean, come on. I mean, does, does America feel like a better or worse country than it was, say, 10 years ago? Worse. 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 We also asked what they thought of Hillary Clinton. It's the Clinton dynasty. It's, and it's the Clinton entitlement. Ideology. <laughs> yeah, it's the entitlement. I always picture somebody who thinks it's her turn, which bothers me. And, uh, and, and yes, whenever I see that she's going to Hollywood and earning all that money and having speeches for that or Wall Street, and it just seems like she thinks it's her turn. Complete deception, lying. I wholeheartedly believe that she has had people killed, that she covered up things that her husband has done, that she has done. I don't believe 
a single word she says. Um, I don't believe she's even healthy enough to be running. I think that she will die, or they will choose someone else. I think this is a huge plan. Every controversy that surrounds her, people end up dead. Well, even if she's had people killed, she's a murderer. But I really think there is a big health thing going on with her and that she's being deceptive. I can't remember where I heard it, but they're saying that one of her bodyguards is actually a neurologist, mm -hmm. and that's why she's, you know, he's with her all the time. I think she's got advanced Parkinson. Yep. Advanced Parkinson. I have it in my family, and it, she shows a lot of the signs. I think she's pure evil. Just in case you missed that, that was a Hillary Clinton opponent stating her very strong belief that Hillary Clinton was pure evil. And that was a theme that came out frequently during the focus group when presented, you know, questions about Hillary Clinton, that there was a widespread belief that Hillary Clinton had murdered people or had ordered people killed. So the flourishing of conspiracy theories this year is currently quite strong, and it's really an entrenched narrative that I believe Hillary Clinton can never overcome if people believe that she's murdered people. There's never any way that you're going to persuade them otherwise or persuade them to ever vote for her. I think the thing that most surprised me about that was that I'd have thought that was a kind of niche view that we might encounter in one or two places. I didn't expect it to hear to hear it from both groups right out of the box as though it's the kind of received wisdom. Is it really a widespread view among otherwise rational people? This is a view that has been percolating since the early 90s, since the Vince Foster suicide and there were there was a conspiracy theory that Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton were somehow complicit in their staffers suicide you know what something that i was just a little bit staggering was the widespread mistrust of the media i knew it was really bad but when usa today is getting called out as you know a communist pub publication in support of Hillary Clinton there really is a fundamental mistrust in traditional american sources of news the th when it comes to donald trump himself i was quite surprised that his supporters didn't seem to be starry eyed about him they seem to think yeah he has his flaws he does say sometimes quite unpalatable things but that's just the price you pay for getting the change. There's only going to be one way in this country to get change at this election, and that's to vote for him. Yes, it was the take was even Trump's volatility is worse than what we know we're going to get for sure with Hillary Clinton. The thing these groups most reminded me of, of research we've done before, was the Brexit referendum. Hearing similar things about, we need to change, we're going in the wrong direction, something needs to be done. You can't be absolutely sure what the consequence of this change is going to be if we make it. And I might be only cautiously optimistic and even slightly anxious about the change when it happens, but I'm going to do it anyway. And I have to say that's what makes me think there is more chance of Donald Trump winning this election than I had expected to think at this stage. Listening to the concerns of the focus group participants this week in Wisconsin certainly did make me think that there's a stronger chance for Donald Trump in this election than most pundits and pollsters have been giving him. The Hillary Clinton supporters were so lukewarm and really seemed like they weren't absolutely convinced yet that they were going to actually go and place their check for Hillary Clinton, that that made me think that Donald Trump, his supporters at least, are committed. They want change. They're going to, sh they're going to turn up. We should remember that this is only 
one set of groups and we, most of the people we've spoken to were in fact Trump supporters so we don't want to be misled by that we've got a long way to go and we've got a lot of people to speak to including some other Hillary supporters so maybe we'll find a bit more enthusiasm somewhere else Margaret Hoover is a political strategist, a commentator with CNN, and the best-selling author of the book American Individualism. She shared her thoughts with Lord Ashcroft on the 2016 presidential election and how candidates can appeal to the all-important millennial generation. Margaret, you spend a lot of time thinking about how younger voters look at politics and the Republican Party in particular. How do you think that that generation sees the race between Clinton and Trump? My sense is that there is an incredibly and perhaps historically high degree of detachment and disillusionment with the race this time around, Uh, especially given the backdrop of historically high numbers of millennial voters. And of course, millennials in the U.S. are people who are getting their driver's licenses at the age of 16 and range all the way to sort of early parenthood, 36 years old. So this sort of beginning of the Reagan era or the Thatcher era and going all the way to the end of Bill Clinton's presidency, this is the cohort that came out in droves and really made what many analysts suggest was the difference in Barack Obama's first election. Um, We saw historically high numbers of millennials voting by 33 percentage points for Barack Obama in 2008. And again, in very high numbers in 2012, though slightly less, which is largely credited to the economic downturns during that time that hit that generation disproportionately. But given the fact that millennials came to the sort of voting um, experience in such large numbers, far higher than any other generation prior to them at that point in their life cycle, the lack of enthusiasm for either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump in 2016 is stark. What kind of message do you think the Republicans need to have to appeal to these younger voters? I think you have to understand who you're talking to and then understand what kind of policies um, and prescriptive policies are going to help them. I mean, you have to understand, as I said, they're 40% non-white, the largest minority group are Hispanics, 20% of them have an immigrant parent. Building a wall Um, isn't probably the best way to approach the generation. Even if you do care about having an immigration policy that is fair and robust and uh, treats everybody equally, to start the conversation with building a wall isn't going to open ears and hearts and minds. Um, I think immigration is an important issue. I think social issues, especially LGBT freedom, are important. Frankly, I think fiscal issues like debt actually matter quite a bit to this younger cohort because they understand that they're going to be inheriting, um, frankly, crippling levels of debt that will leave their generation either worse off economically by paying the tab for their parents and their grandparents or, um, or with such extraordinary taxes that they have in order to pay for it. Um, so there's, you know, there's a, I think there's a, a real pragmatism in the generation that is... Uh, is not ideological and that wants to solve problems. And in the United States, the atmosphere, I think, has become so so deeply partisan um, and, frankly, polarizing that it has also 
kept a generation on the sidelines this time around. Well, do you think the Democrats, um, Hillary Clinton uh, in particular, are doing a better job of appealing to these young voters? Only marginally. I mean, truly, when you look at the at the the latest polling data, whether it's Gallup or whether it's McClatchy, um, Donald Trump's got about a 9% favorability rating with millennials, and Hillary Clinton has about a 30% favorability. So somewhere anywhere between 30 and 40%. Um, so Donald Trump does the worst of the four major candidates, and by the way, that includes the Green Party candidate and the Libertarian candidate, not, not candidacies that normally garner more than 5% of the vote. <laughs> okay. But they're doing much better this time because of the unpopularity of the two major party candidates. Um, so Donald Trump is polling fourth, which isn't great. Isn't they seeing a big change in the way people get their news, with Facebook becoming a major news source for the younger voters in particular? What effect do you think that this is having on politics in the U.S.? The effect of Facebook? Yeah. I mean, for millennials, that's all the only place they get their news. They don't go to news websites. They don't go to the Wall Street Journal or to the Daily Mail, although they do get a lot of Daily Mail feeds in their Facebook page. But what they end up having at Facebook is... Um, their own, and, and the same is true to a certain extent to Twitter, though Facebook is has a far more powerful um, and, and broader reach, is they have their own personal news feeds. They have their own, you know, who needs the AP if they can get their own personal news feed that has all of the endorsements of their friends and relatives and um, network that shares their sensibilities. Um, so so I, I think it's actually having an extraordinary event, and I think it actually the, the the digital space in politics, American politics, is right on the cusp of overtaking the old media. Um, while the old media fights desperately uh, to to hold on to um, their ad buys and their high percentage rates of uh, payments in the old political system, but frankly, I think the the power of Facebook and and digital is you you can measure it, and it's it's pronounced. Your great-grandfather, Herbert Hoover, was the first American president ever elected without prior political experience. What similarities or contrasts do you see when comparing his rise to Donald Trump? This is a perfect question. I'm delighted to have this. Why don't we start with Herbert Hoover? Um, You are right. Herbert Hoover was the first American president who was a civilian, never elected to any other public office prior to holding the presidency. He, in a way, was a wartime hero because he had risen to global prominence as a civilian at the outbreak of World War I when he was living in London, uh, which was at the time the capital of mining finance. He was running mining properties on five continents. And when Germany invaded Belgium, he individually volunteered to orchestrate the feeding of a nation, which was the first ever... um, effort of its kind, and frankly created the model for what became UNICEF, and now feeds an entire industry of international nonprofit food relief agencies. Herbert Hoover pioneered that himself. He was the only American who was able to cross both sides of the lines throughout the course of World War I in the name of the Commission for the Relief of Belgium, an independent nonprofit agency that delivered food relief to the Belgians. I will take that comparison of that individual who had never been held to elective office but had served his entire public life for others in comparison to to Donald Trump, who um, really just doesn't have much of a track record of service to others. 
And uh, so, so there's there's quite a bit of contrast between the two. Hoover had, of course, served in in camp, uh, in, in, in uh, public office before, and, and Trump hasn't, though it wasn't elected office. That is the one thing they have in common. The other thing I will say, though, is that there was a downside for Hoover not having been in elective office before, because there are things you don't you only learn um, by having served constituents, having worked with the Congress, having. Um, worked legislation through, and I think that, if I, to be frank, um, I think even Hoover and many of Hoover's uh, supporters would suggest that he suffered a downside from not having served in elected office previously. Um, so, you know, this is an extraordinary year uh, where there's a real thirst for outsiders, um, but I don't know that just bringing in an outsider can solve everyone's problems. We've we've set up a constitutional or representative democracy with lots of checks and balances to prevent uh, somebody who could so easily come in and just fix things. Our second set of focus groups was with millennials, that is voters aged between the age of 18 and 35. We started off by asking them how they saw the choice before them at this election. I feel like I'm in the Truman Show. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's all I, I... I can't fathom the fact that we got here as a nation where my choices are what I consider to be terrible and ridiculously terrible. You don't, you don't hear anybody anymore that says that they're outright supporting one of the candidates. I don't know anybody that's for Hillary. I don't know anybody that's for Trump. It's just everybody's in this big stew right now, and they don't know what they're going to do. So, yeah, it is voting against the other person. Honestly, all this stuff just blurs together at this point. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it's just every week, every day, you turn the news on. There's something new crazy that Trump said and something new crazy that Hillary's being accused of, and it's just constant. So We've lost, the, lost the ability to be outraged. Yeah, you know, we're surprised. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Though some of the people in these groups were planning to vote for Donald Trump, many had reservations about him. I just feel like Trump is a loose cannon, and he doesn't have any sort of filter, and he just says whatever, which is not necessarily a good thing when you're dealing with other countries and global conflict. I guess for me it's just embarrassing. For example, I had a Mongolian student come, and he's a transfer student. He's like, oh, so you're the country that's going to vote for the guy that says that everyone is this and and Muslims need to go back home, so am I going to be treated bad? So just having him say that and then all my Somalian students feel the same about it, these are kids that love America. You know, this is a a country that's giving them an opportunity. So for me, it was just kind of like I'm embarrassed that this is the face, even though he's not even a president yet, and this is the first thing they recognize us for. They talked about America's place in the world and how they saw the idea of America intervening to help solve some of the world's problems. I think it's a catch-22. If we don't do it, nobody else that is palatable for Americans is going to do it. That's what we've generally seen. Uh, Britain does some, but they're under the same pressures that America is. France has pretty much thrown other hands in the air and said, well, unless we used to be a colony, unless you were our colony, we don't really care. Germany, they, they kind of said, well, you know, we have this militarist past. We better not do much. Japan, same thing. So we're leaving the door open for other people to do it if they do. And when we walk away, like Somalia, where did that get us? Pirates attacking our shipping containers as they're going across the ocean, and then everybody's like, well, geez, look at all these pirates. I agree with the security aspect of things, Um, but as far as, like, resources and giving to other countries and all the aid that we give, um, Mm -hmm. there's enough poverty here that I feel that it should be more focused Mm -hmm. in the U.S. 
Finally, we asked them what they thought life was like for their generation and what they thought had become of the American dream. I don't think we're going anywhere. I think we've been stuck in the same spot that we've been stuck in with rights and everything. Like The only positive thing that's come out of Obama's election, the massive positive thing that's come out of Obama's election is the LBGTQ rights. There's two diabetics um, in my family. I'm a type 1, my dad's a type 2. We pay over a thousand two hundred dollars a month mm. for health care, and that's three people. And my mom's perfectly healthy. I carry the computing power to put a man on a moon in my pocket, so I'm fairly confident I'm better off than my grandparents and parents were. I'm much more optimistic for my daughter's future than I was in 2008 when she was born, when the market collapsed, and I thought to myself, "What have I just created? What has happened for my children?" and now you can't, I can't go to a fast food restaurant without getting a flyer, please apply for a job. I hate Trump's slogan that America is not great. I think America's always been great. It still is. But we have problems now that are coming up for this new generation. I do feel like we have a lot of benefits. I mean, freedom of speech, that's worth it right there. A lot of countries do not have our freedoms. I feel like the American dream is still very much alive and that if you work hard, mm -hmm. um, it, it does pay off. Well, listening back to that, I think that group was more optimistic than I had expected. There's, there were problems with things like healthcare that they were worried about, but the American dream, in some senses, was really still there. They certainly were more optimistic than I expected. And I think what I found striking about the conversation with the millennial voters was that less than outrage at a government policy per se, you know, they might have been upset at Obamacare, they were really frustrated with the two-party system. And they felt that it had presented them with some terrible choices this year and that voting for Trump would be a vote to blow up the system if they did end up choosing to go that path. While I had quite similar concerns about Trump that we heard from some of the more reluctant supporters in the first set of groups, their views of Hillary seem to be a lot less, what's the word, toxic. Well, there's something in American politics we've talked about for years and call it Clinton derangement syndrome, just how she's been in the press for so long and she's been so well covered for so long and there have been so many lingering scandals with Hillary Clinton where it might not even be quite a scandal, but there's enough of a tinge of it where questions still remain that it's really built up a lot of conspiracy surrounding Hillary Clinton. And the millennial voters certainly weren't buying into that the way that some of the older focus group participants did. I wonder why that is. Is that the places they get their news or is it just that they haven't had long enough to get to loathe her as much? I think it is part of not having you know, the bombardment of Clinton news. They're younger, certainly. But also I found the news sources that millennials chose were a bit more rigorous and fact-driven than what some of the older participants. You know, among millennials, they were citing major mainstream news publications as their primary sources of news. And some of the older participants definitely tended to go to you know, niche media that caters to a certain view of right-wing ideology. But I do think that one defining thread that I saw this week and I certainly thought was noteworthy was that Trump voters at least feel like they're voting for change, whereas Hillary Clinton supporters are so lukewarm. And she really is going to have to push and organize to get people to turn out for her, for her because there does seem to be just so much tiredness with her candidacy. 
That's just about all from the Ashcroft in America podcast this week. All our research is published at lordashcroftpolls.com, where you can read Lord Ashcroft's weekly column on the presidential campaign. Thanks to everyone who's mentioned us on Twitter. Don't forget you can tweet us with your questions, comments, and focus group question ideas using the hashtag Ashcroft in America. Meanwhile, we're heading south. We'll see you next week in North Carolina. <laughs>